Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 158. No need to worry that it might be only divisible by one in itself. That's not going to happen here. Nope. Yep. All of your concerns were unfounded. They were. They were needless. Mm-hmm. I wish I could have that effort back, but... <laughs> oh, I didn't mean your concerns. Oh. You knew at a glance. I did, yeah. right away. Yeah. Just, just that good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's a, uh, to... to think back to last week's discussion it's a it's a weak superpower that one it's a weak super well the thing is if you're gonna do it just by checking to see whether it's an even number you gotta be real careful because you can get tripped up can you yes very much so Hmm. i'm not aware of this you aren't no oh down in the area of uh two there is a discussion as to whether two is prime no i think it's a quest there's a question about whether or not Zero is prime, isn't that right? Oh no, it's one. That's that's the uh, the the confusing one. No, but I guess I mean you're right. Two is two, the, two, two is, is a zero is a is an even prime. It's the only the yeah. only even prime. Yeah, as far as we know, I should say that just to be perfectly careful. Even though mathematically there is no reason to be careful at all. Just start out in the weeds this week. <laughs> Decide to do that. Is it in the weeds, not on the weed. Uh, no. Okay. Not not so. Uh, so this week we're going to talk a little bit about a number, a wide variety of things. Um, and maybe instead of trying to figure out how those all go together in advance, uh, just just wait for it. But let's do the top of the hour stuff first. Yeah, we first. can do a mashup. Oh my god. <laughs> um, so you can find us on, find Dark Horse on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at this point. We follow these live streams with a Q&A. You can ask questions on darkhorsesubmissions.com. Please consider finding our book, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, everywhere books are sold. Pretty much. Yep. Uh, And if you're watching on YouTube, you can also watch on Odyssey live. That's where the chat is going on. And of course, then uh, the the video will also be up on Spotify and the audio is up, you know, everywhere you find podcasts. So, uh, and we know that most of our audience is listening only. So we have some interesting visuals this week, but we will try to describe them, although it may in a few cases, be difficult to fully they describe. They may defy description. They may defy description, yes. Yes, and we don't have the uh, pictures worth, how many words? 10,000? Uh, I believe that after inflation, maybe. What is it? What is it? I think it's a thousand. It's just a thousand. It's, it's the usual claim. Yeah, you're... <laughs> I'm just going orders of memory. Yeah, just you're only one order of magnitude For the entire That's... top of the hour, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I will now, I will now get out of the weeds as well. Um Consider uh, finding me where I write at Natural Selections. This last week, I wrote a bit about dominance hierarchies and gender norms in humans. The week before, I wrote about beavers and their foundational role in uh, in basically architecting the landscapes of North America and the ecosystems of, of North America. And yesterday, uh, we dropped an episode uh, on the same topic. Uh, in which you were talking to the wonderful Jacob Shockey, who is a former student of ours and a friend of ours, and uh, you had an almost three-hour conversation. Almost three-hour conversation, and then, as you know, um, Jacob stuck around, and we did some fun stuff, but it turned out there was just a whole lot of stuff that uh, he had to say about beavers that uh, is going to have to wait for a a volume two, because, you know... Absolutely. there's There's some very interesting stuff that didn't make it into the podcast. Yeah, and uh, I haven't listened to the entire podcast yet. I did read the piece that I wrote on account of having written it, mm-hmm. uh, and you know a couple of the the points that have 
stuck with me specifically are um, the mitigating effect on loss of biodiversity and on uh, extreme weather and climate conditions like drought and flood uh, and fire, uh, especially in the American West. And then also the fact that, and I know that you talked about this in your conversation with Jacob as well in the Dark Horse podcast that dropped yesterday, um, but that the, the beaver trappers were so successful at what they did. And still to this day, the beavers that remain are very docile. So it's interesting that they, that the beaver trap, the intensive beaver trapping over hundreds of years did not have the selective effect on the behavior and the personality of beavers that you might expect that they remain sort of easy to approach in many regards. Um, but they were effectively eradicated through so much of the American West that when the eminent naturalist Grinnell, uh, came through in the, I think it was the 1930s, his natural history notes from his tour of the American West basically framed, you know, put into place an expectation among ecologists of what, of what we were trying to recover to which of course is always a dicey proposition, you know, aiming, aiming for a single moment in a shifting over both space and time landscape. Uh, but he saw, Grinnell saw so, so little beavers that even so few beavers, yeah, depending on if it's a collective down or not. Um, and, you know, like us, did not infer from the landscape that what he was seeing was extraordinary evidence of an abundance of beavers throughout, you know, many, many tens of thousands, at least of years. The ghost of beavers past. Yes, that he he said, you know, he, he basically made a number of claims based on what he saw. But he then made inference that was wrong. And from that, we have historical range maps that are inaccurate because they're based on this great naturalist who was normally so good at what he did. But even even he did not see through basically the, the fog of time. So I wanted to add one thing to that. So uh, probably because beavers were trapped primarily, um, the... Rem the remnant of their uh, approachability might uh, not be a strong indicator of how selected they were by that interaction. And in fact, um, well, actually, this runs a little bit counter to what I just said, but what I learned from Jacob after the podcast was that although it has been generally our experience, your and mine, and generally accepted by most people who uh, talk about beavers in a scientific context that they are nocturnal that mm -hmm. there's actually good reason to think that that is a switch mm -hmm. that they have moved into a nocturnal niche presumably to avoid people mm -hmm. um and that the evidence for this which because is because trappers are lazy <laughs> or because not all beavers well, go nocturnal at once, and so you know you, you you evade the trappers. Yeah, but also just because we're diurnal, and so we're not as good at hunting at night. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, you hobble. Yeah, la lazy for good reason. Yeah, <laughs> right. right. Lazy as a matter of self-preservation in, in large measure. But um, but the lack of the tapetum lucidum in the eye, that is the reflective surface that causes nocturnal animals' eyes to shine. If you ever shine a flashlight at a dog at night, you see the eyes shine back. That absence suggests that this was not in initially um, a nocturnal creature. And it's interesting. I know another story where a creature has um, moved into diurnality mm -hmm. by the same mechanism, which is a very strange well, thing. Well, for the same reason. For the same reason. And this is um, the one and only example of a bat that is diurnal. That bat appears to have been 
nocturnal in origin, but it is hunted by people in the roost, and so it pays to be out when people are up doing their hunting. So just this is a, a macro or mega whatever mega mega mega, mega chiroptera. Yeah. So this is one of the fl- like flying foxes. This is one of these big beefy bats that actually would provide you know sustenance for a family of humans as opposed to these little micro bats yeah. that we've got here in the new world. More of a snack bat. Yeah, this <laughs> is a this is a full meal <laughs> bat. <Snack> <laughs> <laughs> All right, I take it back. But in any case, interesting that uh, beavers do appear to have been modified in this way, and it hasn't seemed it hasn't changed their approachability so much, but it has changed the likelihood of an encounter mm-hmm. based on yeah. them being primarily nocturnal. Although I will say, um, at least two of the instances in which uh, I've seen beavers, it was during the day. Right. Um, one in Oaks Bottom down in Portland, and one you and I saw a beaver i want to say eastern washington somewhere yeah it was, it, the was cascades. it was in it was in the cascades a mm-hmm. uh, very interesting animal that we, get, we got to watch quite a bit i was also reminded of a um <laughs> it's funny uh i found jacob during the podcast talked a little bit about the fact that his first encounter with a beaver had been at the bus stop at the loop at Evergreen that one had trundled by, and we had both remarked. He'd never seen a beaver before that? I don't think so. Even though he, interesting, Even given and, where he grew up, that's interesting. Yeah. And uh, anyway, his point was he should have followed it, because what the hell was it doing there? There's no obvious reason for a beaver to be there. And then as I was falling asleep last night, I realized that there was a there was a, an episode in my teaching at Evergreen where I didn't see a beaver, but I was biking along the bike path on the main road there Mm -hmm. um and i saw a beaver sign Mm -hmm. right i saw a place where beavers had chewed some sticks and it's in a little culvert right no place that a beaver could possibly hope to create any kind of useful uh pond and i had i had brought my students and my co-faculty there and they disbelieved me that it was real and so anyway, Jacob's observation of a beaver, you know, what would be a block and a half from where I found beaver sign is um, interesting. They're, for whatever reason, they're active up on the road there. Yeah. No, and I actually think no one else will know the particular uh, geography of the area around Evergreen. But yeah, I, I actually am remembering areas that now now that I think on it feel, feel beaverful to me. Yeah. And in fact, there is one uh, across that road. Um, there is a, there is a wetland that is otherwise inexplicable. So I'm thinking that's it. Uh, so, so check both of those things out. Check out, uh, the podcast, uh, the Dark Horse podcast from yesterday and, uh, my natural selections piece from two weeks ago and, uh, we'll continue. Hopefully we'll have Jacob back and, um, and we'll continue talking about this. Okay, um, still top of the hour stuff. Our new store is darkhorsestore.org. You can get uh, merch with Lie to a Tyrant, uh, Epic Tabbies, uh, Dire Wolves, Dark Horses, lots of good stuff. Lots of good stuff there. And finally, we are supported by you, our audience. We appreciate you subscribing, liking, sharing both our full episodes here on YouTube and Odyssey or Spotify or Clips at Dark Horse Podcast Clips, another Odyssey or YouTube. And uh, YouTube has begun running ads on our stuff again, even though they fully demonetized us. So uh, this seems like an illegitimate move, as we've mentioned over and over and over again. So, you know, they are the only ones seeing benefit from running ads on our material. Um, and so we appreciate uh, even even more than if they had not done that, your support in any way that you can give it. You can join one of our Patreons. 
where we where you can get access to our Discord community. Uh, they have um, they have conversations ongoing with people young and old, left and right. You know all the demographics you might you might um, be able to think of, and and you aren't dismissed on account of having one or more or lacking one or more demographic markers, unlike so many of the conversations that um, seem to be happening these days. Uh, so yeah, um, I just wanted to say. Uh, Maybe the most important way to support us is actually spread the word, because one of the ways, you know, yes, mm -hmm. they demonetized us, which is a, a very aggressive and direct move. But then there is also all of the cryptic stuff where uh, the reach is limited. And so you as a viewer can help us by sharing things you think are worthwhile with people who you think aren't seeing them. That's right. And then also at our Patreons, you can get access to a private monthly Q&A online or to uh, two different conversations that Brett has. Uh, which are um, on the first Saturday and Sunday and last Sunday of the month, respectively. And I've just reversed the order, so it wasn't respectively. And if you're just listening, you have maybe no idea what I'm talking about. And I apologize for that. <laughs> um, okay, so without further ado, we also have sponsors. Uh, and we, we pick and choose carefully. And so you know that if we are reading a script for a sponsor, that we actually um, we actually vouch for that product or um, or service, um, either in practice or in theory. Okay, our first sponsor this week is Mizzen and Main, which doesn't make anything that I could use, but it makes beautiful and comfortable clothing for men. Brett is wearing a Mizzen and Main shirt right now. Uh, I don't wear them, but Brett does, and frankly, ever since he started, he doesn't really want to wear anything else, it seems. Um, but it's great. They're so great. I got one for our producer for Christmas, our producer who's also our 18-year-old son. These shirts look great, and the fabric feels great to the touch, and apparently they're incredibly comfortable too. Yes, they are. Yeah, uh, and that's that's one of the big selling points here is that many men's dress shirts I hear uh, are very stiff and they sort of restrict your movement a lot, but there's just enough stretch in these shirts uh, to actually be comfortable, to make you want to wear them as opposed to have you feeling the entire time you're wearing them that you can't wait to take them off. Most men's dress shirts are badly tailored or made of material you wish you'd ever been in contact with, not Miz and Amin's shirts. They invented the performance fabric dress shirt. They make the most lightweight, breathable, and moisture-wicking dress shirt on earth. They're warm in the winter, cool in summer, the kind of product that once you try it, you never go back to conventional again. And they're machine washable. And even if you're not a dress shirt kind of guy, they've got a whole line of amazing flannels, pants, sweaters, and jackets made from that same mizzen and main material that they've become famous for. Uh, I already said that Brett is wearing one of several mizzen and main shirts right now. It's not surprising because they're kind of your go-to shirts now. They are that good. They look great. Again, warm in the winter, cool in the summer, and so they work in multiple seasons and climates, which means, for instance, if you find yourself traveling from the wintry north to a more temperate climate in the south right now, you'll be well served by these wonderful and beautiful shirts as travel companions. Not companions so no. much. Not to talk to. Mm -hmm. I don't recommend it. I mean, you could stuff them talk and then they them. might be better uh, conversationalists than some, but, uh, but probably <laughs> they, still. They would, you can rest assured they will They will say nothing that could constitute misinformation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you won't feel unsafe in their presence, I expect. That really depends on you. I mean. Yeah, it does. Yeah. 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 I did, the bar is really low, actually. Mm -hmm. So um, I would hope that you could manage not to feel unsafe in the presence of a shirt. Uh, anyway, if you want the best cold weather or warm weather clothing, check out Mizzen and Main. Right now, if you go to MizzenandMain.com and use promo code DARKHORSE, you'll receive $25 off any regular price order of $130 or more. 
That's $25 off when you go to M-I-Z-Z-N-A-N-D-M-A-I-N.com and use promo code DARKHORSE. Okay, our second sponsor this week is Mudwater. Mudwater is a coffee alternative made with four medicinal mushrooms plus herbs and spices. With a seventh of caffeine as a cup of coffee, you get energy without the anxiety, jitters, or crash of coffee, and it's delicious. If you like the routine of making and drinking a cup of warmth in the morning, but don't drink coffee or are trying to cut down, try Mudwater. Each ingredient was added with intention. It has cacao and chai, lion's mane, mushrooms, cordyceps, shaga and reishi, turmeric and cinnamon, and more. This is a terrific product. Have it as a warm drink, take it black or with cream or honey or both. And Mudwater also makes a non-dairy creamer out of coconut milk and MCT. And it also makes a sweetener out of coconut palm sugar and lucuma, which is the fruit of an Andean tree used by the Inca to add. You can add either their non-dairy creamer or their sweetener uh, if you add if you prefer those options. Or mix, mix it up. Add some of their coconut milk and MCT creamer with some honey from your favorite bees, or if you don't have favorite bees, from your favorite beekeeper. And if you don't have a favorite beekeeper, consider getting one, but also um, eat real honey. The flavor is... Are you your beekeeper's keeper in that case? Me particularly? No, no. no, no. If you get a favorite beekeeper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess you. I think you I'm are. I'm thinking uh, by definition you yeah, would be. Yeah, your beekeeper's keeper. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. The flavor of mud water is warm and spicy with a hint of chocolate, plus masala chai, which includes ginger and cardamom, nutmeg, and cloves. You can also blend it into a smoothie with a, with banana and ice, milk or milk-like substance if you don't drink milk, mint and cacao nibs. That's my favorite go-to at the moment. It's utterly delicious, and they've got a wonderful new caffeine-free product designed to be a drink for before bed, which is also delightful. Mudwater is 100% USDA organic, non-GMO, gluten-free, vegan, and kosher certified. Mudwater allows you to build a morning ritual that promotes sustained energy without the crash. So visit mudwater.com slash darkhorse to support the show and use cord this code, this is different, darkhorsemud at checkout for 15% off. That's M-U-D-W-T-R dot com slash darkhorse and use darkhorsemud at checkout for 15% off. I'm wondering if Eric has a beekeeper and whether in that case I would be my brother's beekeeper's keeper i don't know it's no, you're a question not your brother's beekeeper's keeper no i'm not but i'm wondering if i would be if he had a beekeeper and that's where the uh philosophical I, conundrum, I never, I never, never 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 under no circumstance there's nothing that keeper. could happen that would put me in that circumstance well, I don't, I don't say if that. he had an automated beekeeper and he uh gifted it to me then i think i would be all right now that we've settled that <laughs> yes Yes, I All think right. you're right. I'm now going to demonstrate what anxiety looks like because I have not looked at the script before and it is going to throw me uh, due to dyslexia. But here we go. Our final sponsor this week is MindBloom. MindBloom is the leader in at-home ketamine therapy, offering a combination of scientifically robust medicine with clinically guided support for people looking to improve their mental health and well-being. If you or someone you love is struggling with mental health issues, they probably loom large in your life. There is no one-size-fits-all solution, but you know that you or your loved one needs something that will... There is no one-size-fits-all solution, but you know that you or your loved one needs something that will help achieve a real and lasting breakthrough. Maybe it's time you check out a guided ketamine therapy program from MindBloom. MindBloom could be your next and most successful chapter in mental health and well-being improvement. MindBloom connects patients to licensed psychiatric clinicians to help them achieve better outcomes with lower costs, greater convenience, and an artfully crafted experience. 
To begin, take MindBloom's on- online assessment and schedule a video consult with a licensed uh, with a licensed clinician to determine if MindBloom is right for you. If approved, you will discuss your health history and goals for mental health treatment with your clinician to tailor your MindBloom regimen. MindBloom will send you a kit in the mail, complete with medicine, treatment materials, and tips for getting the most out of your experience. After only four sessions, 89% of MindBloom clients reported improvements in their symptoms uh, of depression and anxiety. Reports uh, one client on their site, I thought I was broken, now the light inside me is growing stronger every day. Let MindBloom guide you into a better chapter of mental health and well-being. Right now, MindBloom is offering our listeners $100 off your first six-session program when you sign up at mindbloom.com slash darkhorse and use the promo code darkhorse at checkout. Go to mindbloom.com slash darkhorse, promo code darkhorse for $100 off your first six-session program today. That's mindbloom, M-I-N-D-B-L-O-O-M dot com slash darkhorse, promo code darkhorse. All right. Well, we have a number of things to talk about today. Shall I start or would you like to start? Why don't you start? Okay. Um, I wanted us to talk a little bit about the experience of and the threat of cancellation. Okay. Uh, this is, you know, this is a concept that is mocked by many uh, in, in various venues and of particular political events, largely. Um, but, you know, we pretty famously got canceled in 2017. And, you know, much to the irritation of our enemies, uh, emerged uh, in, in different form, we Phoenix-like. We rose from the canceled <laughs> into the realm of the... Uh, here we are now. Yes, right? here we are now. Here we are now. And it, you know, it took some it took some doing, and it took some time, and it uh, and and there's no guarantees. But of course, uh, part of what happened to us was we actually had tenure, which is to say, we had the guarantees, and then those guarantees proved not to be any guarantees at all. And uh, when a mob came at you, uh, Brett, and then me, uh, with irrationality and spurious claims, and uh, and frankly, violence and nonsense and everything in between. Uh, instead of standing up, uh, most of our colleagues and uh, basically the entire college administration uh, cowered in fear. Uh, we had a certain amount of support in private, uh, but not very much in public. I was on sabbatical at the time, so I didn't have any active students, but your students stood by you and us. and To that, a person. That, to a person. And that is one of the pieces of that story. Uh, that has largely been missed. The idea like, oh, aren't students crazy? And weren't, wasn't that terrible? And, you know, isn't, isn't student culture and isn't that generation just insane? Well, like, no. No, that's not the case. Because as it turns out, if you're actually an excellent professor who really cares about your students, uh, you, um, you develop relationships with them such that when liars come at you and say, you're this, they can say, no, actually, I know this man. And you're not, right? So, yeah, I do want to add something. I think the reality is even more stark. Great. It's even worse than that. It's even even better than that in this case. Um, Not only did none of my students defect, which I think is what the protesters were absolutely expecting, is that, you know, you protest a white professor, 
on the basis that he's a racist and it doesn't much matter what the reality is, you would expect students to join that protest because it's an of-the-moment thing and not a one did. Well, but, and it's, it's, uh, it's inherent to today's logic. Look at your skin, therefore you're a racist. Right. right. We, we, we must cure you and you're incurable. That's how we know you are one, right? That's the kind of logic. <laughs> right? yeah. yep. But not only did none of my students defect, but... Several of them, including a number of students of color, courageously stood up and defended me and were punished specifically for it because mm -hmm. that was a bad look for the protesters. Um, there were attempts at re-education. Yep, there were attempts at re-education. Mm -hmm. But also the long history of students that we'd had, we didn't, none of those people showed up and made crazy claims about racism either, mm -hmm. right? It didn't happen. Yeah. And the final piece of that puzzle is that all of the students who did show up you know, 50 or so students who poured through the door and made these accusations, never met a single one of them, right? So the point is, it's like absolutely clean that those with experience weren't persuaded by this story. Mm -hmm. You had to have exactly zero direct experience in order to be involved in that in the first place. But of course, none of that, you know, I, we are lucky that all of those facts emerged right? That mm -hmm. these protesters were foolish enough to film what they did so that it showed up in public so that we could have that discussion. So it didn't just look like, oh, you know, th that professor is clearly off and the students have risen up against them and all of that. The, the lie got put to their um, claim. But for most people, presumably that is not what happens, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't become a famous incident. And so people... Well, and in the, partic like the particular kind of professoring that you did and that I did, in the particular model that only Evergreen afforded, meant that you really had um, deep relationships with your students, where most college professors don't, in part because they have no interest in it, uh, which is unfortunately true for many, uh, but also the standard model of higher ed, the standard model of almost all education now, with some interesting exceptions over in, um, you know, Waldorf and Montessori space, um, and, a, and a few other experiments in higher ed, but nothing like Evergreen. Um, the, the standard model is, you know, I'll see you for 50 minutes three times a week, or maybe an hour and a half two times a week or something. And if it's a lab class, then, you know, you'll have three hours at a time, but it's probably with a TA, you're probably never going to see the professor. Maybe he or she will walk through once, right? And that you can learn some things that way. What you cannot do is develop community as a, as a class. It is therefore more difficult, more time consuming, less predictable. You can't just um, set it and go, set it and forget it as the professor, nor can you as the student. Uh, and and so it is, you know, it's it's more challenging in almost every regard, but it is it has the potential to be so much more educational. And one of the proofs of that is that uh, when a mob showed up on your doorstep, those people who were in your classroom, which at another school and with another professor, might have been eager to jump in with the mob and have that kind of fun because a lot of people like to be in mobs, or at least they want to be on the side of the majority. Um, no one bit. Yeah. Right. And that is in part a result of actually the educational model. Well, and it's even better than that. Um, <laughs> okay. Because in the case of these students, we had had extensive conversations about human evolution, about population versus population competition. We had talked about race. We had talked about why racism appears and mm -hmm. what we have to do in order to um, negate its, uh, its influence. So 
it wasn't like anybody had to think about whether or not a claim of racism might mean something because right. the point is we'd had those discussions and to the extent that there was a charged discussion it had been diffused because we'd been through it and if there had been any hint of racism they would have detected it and they didn't and so it was like a very quick check oh that doesn't add up yeah so anyway it, it is an, an argument and a strong one for a very intensive model uh, of education mm -hmm. i would point out jacob the uh, mm. beaver researcher and conservationist uh, is a very good demonstration of what sort yeah. of amazing people were in those classrooms. Absolutely. Um, so anyway, yeah, yeah. It, it is a model that uh, someone should resurrect because it's yes. awfully, well, we awfully have, good. We have made some attempts, haven't we? Yeah. So far unsuccessfully, but uh, maybe, maybe again, and, you know, we also get asked by people, okay, well, where can I send my, my kids? It's like, well... Um, as I have said, as I have written about with regard to the University of Austin, for instance, like, yes, the woke needs to go, but it's not sufficient. You know, you, you, need, you need a different educational model, which, yes, will be more challenging for the faculty and will take more of their time and attention away from if they don't really want to be teaching, if they don't really want to be in the classroom or the field or the lab or whatever with students, if that's just a distraction that they feel like that's penance they have to pay before they can get back to their main work, which is their research over here, then they're not going to be interested in a full-time model of, of education like Evergreen had, and uh, they're not going to be good at it if they're forced to it. Yeah, the, uh, the, the hidden aspect of that is full-time is a description of one parameter. The freedom mm -hmm. to make use of that full-time interaction <clears throat> is um, both the beauty of it and the Achilles heel yeah. because you have to be inclined not over not only to have that kind of intensive teaching relationship but to figure out what to do with it mm -hmm. and uh, I think I said on the podcast with Jacob that the thing you know Evergreen gave you total freedom to figure out what to do mm -hmm. but it never figured out what to do with professors who couldn't figure it out and that if it had figured out how to keep only those professors who after three years had demonstrated a willingness and a desire to innovate new things with all of that freedom, then it would have been a great place because it would have been filled with people who made use uh, of that to the benefit of their students. And that the tragedy of what happened at Evergreen is in large measure because um, that was it was hit and miss with respect to whether an individual faculty was up to the task or not. Yeah, too often miss, unfortunately. Um, so... All of that is sort of lead up to 2017 was rough. That was that, you know, May 23rd, 2017 is when the mob showed up at your door. That whole academic year, 2016 into 2017, uh, and even before that, but especially that year, it was, it was roiling and it blew up and it was September before we knew for sure that we were not going to be professors anymore. And it was, you know, it was a full on reversal of, you know, our entire lives reversal is the wrong word, an upending. We went yep. through the looking glass in, in the language that we started to use. And one of the things that you see after you go through the looking glass is, oh, survived. It's actually interesting over here. There's some interesting people that I couldn't see before. And uh, also, when people make false claims at you, when they yell at you that you're a bigot, um, and you're not because you checked with yourself and you're self-aware enough and honest enough with yourself to know, and you have friends and family around you who will tell you if you're wrong, you can say, yeah, mm -mm, nope, not true, right? And, and it is also extraordinarily obvious that most of the time it's the people claiming bigot who are in fact the bigots, right? 
And that, and that we know, most of our audience will already be well familiar with, with this. But one of, you know, now we are, we will be six years out uh, this, this year. Um, you know, we have, we, we have now, of course, COVID has happened and we've had a different kind of run in with sort of cancellation, this, you know, the demonetization, the shadow banning that, you know, and the actual banning of some things like the Unity account, but the demonetization by YouTube, all of these things are kinds of cancellation, but the like cancellation by mob using, um, woke language to cow everyone into silence and compliance. I figured we were completely free of. And I, unfortunately, in the last few weeks, came to see the naivete of that position. Because what is true is that if you have connections, if, if there are other people whom you love in the world who are not free in the same way, who have not been pre-canceled <laughs> as, as we have been and are thus immune to that particular thing, then the mob can come for them because of their association with you. And this this was attempted, and I'm I'm just I'm going to speak in kind of vague terms here. Um, we may speak more more in more detailed and precise ways later, but but for now, for today, we're gonna we're gonna keep it vague. But I will say that um, I found myself in the face of uh, a, a dear friend of mine being at risk of losing, and I'm going to use that crazy. Um, plural pronoun just to obscure this person's sex uh, at, at risk of losing their their job um, because they insisted that no they are actually friends with me and I'm an evolutionary biologist and I believe that there are two sexes and only two sexes and humans and that you can't switch between them it is my purported transphobia which a is does not mean what it they claim it means and b if it means anything at all, it means all sorts of things because what trans is is all sorts of things, right? And as we have said over and over and over again, as I have written over and over and over again, um, I know trans people. I understand trans to actually be a condition, a, a, a condition of being human for very, very, very rare people who actually feel deeply inside of themselves, that in order to live their lives as they need to live them, they need to live them as the sex that they are not. Such people are generally not confused about having actually transitioned sex. And all the rest of it, which is the vast majority of what is passing for trans and trans rights activism and trans activism in general now, is either um, misogynistic and regressive to you know gender norms of the 50s. If you like wearing a dress, you must be a woman. Hmm. No, wrong. Uh, but there are you know I, I can I could riff on all the ways that trans is and is not represented accurately in in modern activism now, but the short version here is that someone tried to take my friend out because he is friends with an evolutionary biologist who knows and I used the word believe before but who knows <laughs> that in the human lineage there are two and only two sexes and there have been for at least 500 million years and maybe up to 2 billion years. And furthermore, and I wrote about this a little bit in my natural selections piece this last week, um, in mammals, there are no known cases of functional hermaphrodites or of being able to switch between sexes. 
And mammals is a really old clade, far older than when than Chicxulub, 65 million years ago at the Cretaceous Tertiary boundary, when you know a giant piece of rock hit the earth around the Yucatan and wiped out the non-avian dinosaurs. And then you had the rise of the mammals, but mammals existed before then. We've got, you know, mammals are very, very old, and we don't have any evidence anywhere in mammal history ever of mammals being able to actually switch sex. Gender is the software. Gender is the manifest, the behavioral manifestation. And can you have, you know, men who behave more like typically typical women and vice versa? Yeah, you can. Uh, and that doesn't change what they are fundamentally. So <clears throat> that all is over in some specific territory. The thing that, that wait, wait, really there, grabbed there, me. Okay, go There ahead. are a couple things to say. One, yeah, mammals did exist before... Uh, the uh, the extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs, but they were oppressed by them. They were. they were. It was the age of dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. you've seen how we've named it now. Even even mammals named it the age of dinosaurs. Right. <laughs> it was the age of dinosaurs, and now we are in the age of mammals because there are it's only two and a third times as many dinosaur species still on the earth as there are mammals, but never mind that. It's, it's, we are the ones who do the naming, and so... Yeah, now yeah. ostriches don't get to name things, so... No, they do not. No, it's not going to happen anytime soon, ostriches. Yeah. yeah. The other thing I want to say is... This is actually exactly parallel to my students having known better than to accept the claim that I that there was some history of racism. The moment those people streamed through the door, my students knew it was bull, right? Mm -hmm. I hear you accused of transphobia, right? Yeah. I have seen you. I have seen you take care of trans students. I have mm -hmm. seen you fret over the difficulties they run into in the world. And um, the very idea that your, um, you know, what we have is a movement that is actually parasitizing transness, right? This rare but real phenomenon, it is parasitizing that yes. in order to gain access to a protected status that then allows it to do things like, uh, you know, win swimming competitions and things like this. Or well, there's, you know, to, to use biological framing, it, there's a mimicry. So parasitizing, yes, for sure. But it also, it's pretending to be the same thing. Yeah. Right. And in a non-human setting, at the point that the mimic so vastly outnumbers, outnumbers the model, which is to say the true original thing. Yeah. The whole system falls apart. Right, like ev everyone else who's sort of on the outside observing mimics and models, as it were, uh, can can see that it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't work. The signal doesn't work anymore, right? right so you can and there are a few, there are some of us out here saying that's not like no wrong, but unfortunately, a good half ish of the country who's thinking about this at all is compelled by these talking points, and all they have to do is go transphobe, and the the obvious discrepancies and and damage being done especially to children by this ideology just disappears because people are scared of being called names and you were remarkably not scared of being called racist because you had already investigated very carefully and thought and knew no not true I similarly am not scared of being called a transphobe because, A, the word isn't meaningful in the same way that racist at least used to be meaningful, um, but to the degree that it means in the very narrow sense, no, not true. However, I did find myself 
wavering in this situation in a way I never did. Because I because ne- they took a hostage. Because they took a hostage. But, because but look, this yeah. is the this is an, the this is a really important yeah. point. When they came at you, and then very quickly they came at us. But it was even if even if I had somehow remained invisible to the mob that came for you, um, there was it. We were in it together. We've been in it together from the beginning. Um, you, you know, I. I vetted and edited and okayed everything you set out to those crazy people in advance, uh, say, fighting against the ideology, right? Like we were in it together, whether or not they knew that. Yep. I assume and hope that you never doubted that that I would say, can can we just can we can we just give in? Can we just right? That that, that was never never an entered my mind. Never an option for me, and I assume that you knew that, and and you did. But it's not my right to expect someone else whom I love but isn't my life partner to stand strong when when they could say yeah you know what I do disagree with her yeah maybe not my friend right it would have been easy for this person and in fact because because they are who they are it wasn't going to happen yep and they didn't want me to do that and they wanted us to be working together to figure out what to do with me knowing for sure that that wasn't going to happen. But it was harder for me to have the certainty because I felt like something about me has dragged you into this. The mob took a hostage. This makes it so much more challenging, actually. All right. Two points. One, I want to make sure to come back to this because this puts the shoe on exactly the other foot for me on an issue where I uh, I have been clear and I'm probably in error. So I'd like to come back to that. Um, but I want to talk about the confidence when the mob shows up, right? Where does the confidence that the accusation has no merit and therefore does not require, you know, hand-wringing or, you know, extensive contemplation? Mm-hmm. That comes from somewhere. Yeah. And I think it can only be one place, which is that you have already done the contemplation. If you're mm. trying to think this yep. through as the mob is accusing you of things, yeah. right? You're they, not going to. They can confuse you. They can sway you, perhaps. And you know yeah. your your instincts yeah. as a good person, like, well, wait a second, it's not my right to shut somebody down who thinks I've got a moral defect. It's my obligation to to investigate that. Yeah. Well, I need that, to listen to criticism. That thing will be weaponized against mm-hmm. you. And so the yep. point is, look, when those students were accusing me of racism, there is a reason that I had exactly no concern about this. And it's because this has never been a charged issue. It wasn't a charged issue in my family. We talked openly about it. We dealt with the difficulties. And so to whatever extent, I might have a misunderstanding, and I'm sure that I do. It wasn't the result of a moral defect. It wasn't the result of me rooting for one group against another. And in fact, I was very clear on, you know, what I did think about this issue, right? What I thought the unfortunate features of the system were, what I thought the places that humanity was lucky because where race could be a worse issue, mm-hmm. um, the the biology that underlies this is much less horrible than it might be. Um, but in any case, it is the um, the navigation in advance, mm-hmm. right? That is why you also have no fear on the issue of transphobia. Right, because you've done this work in advance over the course of years with different real live people, it's not a theoretical question for you. This is the problem, though. What the mob is doing, one of the many things the mob is doing, is it is making it impossible 
to have a discussion in which you figure out what you think and why. Yeah. Right. It is making it impossible for us to present evidence. You know, it comes up with arbitrary rules like you're not a one of those. So you're not allowed to talk about those. <laughs> right. And right. If, you, if that's a rule, mm-hmm. then the point is, well, how, how do you, will I learn? How do well, it's I not my job to teach you? Well, how about I learn on my own? No, you're not allowed to think about those things because you're not one of those. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you can't make a joke about this. Mm-hmm. OK, I can't make a joke about this because it will make people feel unsafe and not being safe is bad. And, you know, so, okay, now there's a rule against making a joke. Well, but the problem is jokes, even jokes that go too far, right? Of which there are many, many jokes. Mm -hmm. Even jokes that go too far help us figure out where too far is and why Mm -hmm. it's there, right? What makes a joke funny involves figuring out where that line is, right? Without humor, the line still exists, but no one can point to it. Right. And the fact is, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, there are trans people. I got to say... It's an odd phenomenon, Mm. right? It's an interesting phenomenon. It would be shocking if there was nothing funny about it, right? right? (laughs) It would be be utterly shocking, right? right? We can say the same thing about homosexuality. Frankly, we can say the same thing about races and the various arbitrary differences between us, right? Mm -hmm. These are all grounds for humor and humor is... And the differences between men and women. Of course, Right. right? All of these things. And so the point is, it's no accident that the point is you're not one of those you can't talk about it and you sure as hell can't make a joke mm-hmm. right because if you you know if you could make jokes then you could figure out where you stood and why and then you'd be immune when they came through the door and so it's all kind of a matter of frustrating any normal process that would protect you so that you're vulnerable and then can be manipulated to be absorbed into the mob mm-hmm. and to go after the next person which is why this thing is contagious and dangerous is yeah. that it it picks people up Well, it picks people up whom it has already made as ignorant and confused as possible so that they are least likely to be able to defend themselves against techniques that are authoritarian and and mean and frankly bigoted. And, And they, part of what they do is they take all of their characters, which include being authoritarian and mean-spirited and bigoted, and they accuse you of being those things. And, uh, of course, whenever you deny a thing, um, it, it forever after, there is an association with people who maybe don't know you very well. It's like, oh, wasn't she the one who denied the thing? Mm-hmm. Right? And, but yeah, there, there is a lot of bigotry in society still. And... Some of the traditional kinds of bigotry do exist. It was waning fast. Yeah. That was waning fast. And what we have now is on, you know, on the side of the political spectrum that we used to be unabashedly on without any suggestion that we might maybe not really belong on the left. Like that's at least how I felt, right? Mm-hmm. For my entire life. It is that side now that is embracing bigotry, that is embracing name-calling and cancellation and threats and authoritarianism, and it's doing so in the name of love. And it's a lie. Like Some of them are confused themselves, and some of them know that they're full of it, but it's wrong regardless of how they get there. And, you know, enough with the fake, you know, love above all stuff from the people who are acting in exactly the opposite way. 
Like there are a lot of very loving people out there who don't look like what these mobs want them to look like. And frankly, the feelings of the people and the mobs cannot continue to describe for us what it is that we're allowed to do and say in the world. So a couple things before we get to the the second point where the shoe is now on the other foot for me. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. One, I was doing a little thinking, you know. It, I, I, <laughs> I think you were doing a lot of thinking. Yeah, I was. I have been doing a lot of thinking yeah. recently. and Before. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Um, but, okay, so you and I agree bigotry was waning fast and was not all that common, right? Now, the problem is you can hear, as you say that into a microphone, you can hear the pearl clutching and the fainting couch reaching and the hand wringing and the consternation and the calls to have meetings to discuss the, you know, problem of people who are so dumb they don't see how much bigotry there is everywhere. I think no. we could solve these problems with more meetings. Oh, definitely meetings. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. email is not going to cover it. No, no, no. In-person meetings. In, oh. No, maybe Zoom meetings. Zoom meetings. Sitting in the same room. Right. But still done by Zoom. Right. Because then you can turn off your camera if you're snickering at how foolish the other people are being and listening to your bullshit. Um, <laughs> Sorry. I, <laughs> I, um, I, I, I delayed you. I distracted yes. you. you. You derailed me. I de that's, you the, de that's the D word I was looking for, yes. Yeah, which is a kind of violence. I Derailing. am not sorry. Um, weird. Okay. No remorse. Red flag. Mm. Um, you know what it is? No apologies for things I didn't do. Really? I know. Is that your rule? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. That seems somehow morally compromised in some way I'll have to <laughs> pencil out later. Yeah, but there I was derailing you again, for which I right. will apologize. re-derailed me. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, D squared railed me i don't know but yeah so uh, far the, the math derailments are not going well this for is us not today, a good so. math morning but yeah. uh yeah but the gist the gist is right so um in any case the uh here's what i've been realizing yeah. okay and you know you spelled it out okay bigotry was rapidly disappearing from the landscape mm -hmm. um to the point that when Jeremy Lee Quinn and I were talking on our program, remind our audience, uh, a journalist he is a who... freelance journalist who has been in all of the hotspots, including January 6th. He's a lefty uh, anarchist, but anyway, a very good journalist. Mm -hmm. Was there on January 6th, actually went into the Capitol and observed it firsthand. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, interesting guy. And he was describing, I think he was actually describing January 6th to me when, when I interviewed him. And, mm -hmm. and uh, he told me with some excitement that he had actually met a racist, like a guy who was just admitting it and mm -hmm. talking about, yeah, he didn't dig other races and all of this. And I was excited too because <laughs> neither of us had ever met one of these people in the wild, right? They're very rare. Like, in, And was he in a cage or did he get to touch him? Right, it was <laughs> remarkable. He even had a sign. You could just find him in the crowd based like, on his sign. I'm a, I'm a racist. Pretty much something to that find effect. Find me here. Yeah, okay. and so, you know... there. <laughs> There is something a little bit, I don't know, quaint about that, that if somebody is so off. It's that a living dodo bird. He, right, he's a, he's a living dodo. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so they are rare. But then you can hear the pearl clutching and the fainting couch reaching and all of the stuff that people do because, yeah. of course, they know from personal experience mm -hmm. just how much of this stuff is out there. No, you don't. What, what is out there still in large quantities mm -hmm is ignorance. Absolutely. Which is not the same thing as bigotry. Yep. 
right? So anyway, we've been making that distinction for a long time. There's lots of ignorance. You and I have plenty of ignorance mm -hmm. too, as does everybody else. But I'm not saying I, I'm, there's nothing to the accusation that I'm a racist. But yeah, I've got ignorance and, you know, I didn't grow up in anybody else's home. I didn't grow up in anyone else's culture. It's simply that. But then you make the next point, which is actually, though, racism is common. It's just back. That's what it is. It's a new kind. It's mm -hmm. some sort of um, neo-bigotry, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I think that's the sticking point is that yes. now the racists look very different from what they once did. You know, it's not that retro dude at the January 6th protest right. mm -hmm. uh it's some kind of new racism where the focuses are different but nonetheless it's um you know this obsession with race mm -hmm. right which yep. de-individuates people and exposes people to you know again it's you know it doesn't matter that you think you're doing it because you want to be good the point is, no, you're separating us by race again, and you're taking away the thing that's key to being human and substituting something, you know, grotesque that mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, not and only superficial, 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 and there's no way it could possibly work. Mm -hmm. So actually, I did have a, uh, a thought about how to deal again, I imagine with these. You had many. I had a few, but mm -hmm. I thought this one was good. We'll see. Um, so the idea is, how do you deal with these new racists mm -hmm. right and so what i was thinking is um you you just carry around with you for the moment that you need it um some saltines in a little packet <laughs> and then when you encounter uh one of these white folks that is now newly obsessed with race you just uh say, cracker <laughs> <laughs> My feeling is that that would be a, it's at least a conversation starter. You at least might get a few gaskets blown. They might blow Human a gasket, gaskets. right? Yeah. Exactly. No, they could start. I don't blowing know where blues. we have our gaskets actually. I, it's odd. Human gaskets? Yeah. Oh, uh, the blood-brain barrier. I think that. Oh, that's, yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> that's that is, the that one. Is probably it. So, yep. so, so COVID might have caused some gasket blowing. A little, a little yeah. gasket blowing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and some haphazard repairs. Mm. All right, so you were you also wanted to go somewhere oh, yeah. else. Uh, the shoe on the other foot thing. Yeah. So for since we ended up in the public eye as a result of the unfortunate thing that happened at Evergreen to me and then to us, people have come to me regularly and they have basically said, I'm in a terrible situation. It's happening to me. What should I do? And it is clear that when somebody comes to me, they pretty much want to hear me say, okay, here's how you stand up to that. Uh -huh. And I'm very reluctant to do this, right? I'm, Especially if it's not someone you know. Right. And you don't know anything about all of their circumstances. Right. Because what I know is that you and I landed on our feet, and we landed on our feet for lots of different reasons. We had a good support network. We did lose a bunch of friends, but... There was enough there to escape the implosion of Evergreen mm -hmm. and to make our way in the world in a different in a different manner. I don't know that for anybody else. Right. And if somebody stands up to the mob because it's the right thing to do and they lose their job and their family is imperiled or worse because of that catastrophe, yeah. then I don't want to be the one to say, yeah, it's cool to stand up to the mob because as much as I think it's important that we stand up to mobs, it's not 
are all, you know, look, if we hadn't landed on our feet, we at least have family, mm -hmm. right? We have family and it would have protected our children. Not everybody's in that spot. So anyway, I've been very reluctant to give the advice that I know people want me to give. And other heterodox folks have often confronted me over this. Like, why won't you tell them what they want to hear? We need people to stand up. That's how we're going to defeat this thing. If they're coming thing. to you, you know what they want to hear. Right. And I agree. We do need them to stand up. But I still, it's my moral responsibility not to give somebody advice that would be good for me, but potentially bad for them in their situation. Mm -hmm. Right. So anyway, I have failed to deliver the advice that I know is probably for the global best mm -hmm. um, because it is interpersonally not fair to expose somebody to that. But this is the situation that you have found yourself in here where mm -hmm. somebody that you care very much about was taken as a hostage by a mob that had some power to do harm. And I see you going through exactly the... Um, the various machinations over, um, you know, the responsibility of, oh, my God, I put this person in, in peril, mm -hmm. right? And it, I will feel terrible if this... By knowing that there are two sexes in <laughs> Right, by doing your job. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, no, and I, and, I, and I said to them at some point, sort of in the middle of this, like, I, I don't think this is what you are thinking of doing. I don't think you want to do it. I don't think this is what you want to hear from me. This is mostly about me relieving pressure on myself. I, you know, you, I need you to know that it's okay if you know if, if you disavow me, like if yeah, uh, and and I, you know, they didn't. Of course, they won't. No, they wouldn't. Yeah, they wouldn't. It was never a possibility. But I just felt such. It, it's not. It's no longer just about me, and like this. This is so fundamentally the human condition. Yeah. Right, and I didn't. I didn't see this coming exactly because we went through this together, and so I felt I had. I knew, and you know, we had students, and there was like there were effects on students, and like we were we were navigating all of that in real time. I just I, I didn't see this coming, where I felt both responsible to, while knowing that I was in no way responsible for, yeah, the situation, right, responsible to the person. Making sure that they wouldn't feel that they didn't feel obligated to a sense to me to do something that was going to imperil lots of things, um, while also knowing, as did they, as just everyone who can see this with any clarity, like I'm not responsible for this thing. This is about the bigoted mob on the other side wielding power. Yep, um, with some wiggle room over individual cases where somebody yeah. truly has extreme jeopardy. Yeah. I'm now seeing the situation differently because I'm watching you make the arguments that I would make and I'm watching you feel the responsibility that I would feel. Uh -huh. And I feel very differently mm -hmm. from the outside. Um, and I think the key thing is, A, we know how this dynamic works. It's not like the first time anybody's seen this kind of mob. Right. We've seen this mob hundreds of times, mm -hmm. right, in many different contexts. It's yeah. always the same, right? You apologize to it. Does it get placated? No, quite the opposite. You give them an inch, right? they take it all. Second thing is it is a contagious game-theoretic object, right? Its purpose is to get you 
to back down so that it will move on to the next person. And the point is, by backing down, you fuel it. So, in yes. one sense, you know, you've got a person who is confronted with an unfortunate mob, right? That person is in peril, and the instinct is, oh my goodness, to the extent that I'm responsible for you being confronted by a mob, I feel absolutely obligated to do everything I can to get you out from in front of that mob. However, if you do that, the mob comes for somebody else, mm-hmm. right? And so... And destroys all the good things. Right, along the way. Mm-hmm. And so in some sense, we're dealing, you know, it's, it's 2023, right? This happened to us in 2017. We did stand strong, mm-hmm. and we demonstrated how that could be done, and we were lucky to be in a position where we were comparatively uh, well-situated to do it. Mm-hmm. But we needed more people to do it in order that it wouldn't still be going on in 2023. Yeah. And so in some sense, I'm now looking back at the people who I was reluctant to say, no, actually, you really do have to stand up. People who, as you point out, came to me because that's what they wanted to hear. And given that they came to me and that's what they wanted to hear, I probably should have said it. Oh, interesting. That's what I think. Okay. Good. Um, okay. New topic. New topic. New topic, I think. Yeah. Unless, yeah. Um, there's so many different things to talk about here. Uh, do you want to go, or you want me to pick another pick another topic from my little list? I know you've got two big things that you want to talk about. Yeah, and I've got. I, I, I can I can segue here if you like, or why don't you you continue on? We'll pick up the other two afterwards. Okay. Um. I was for my um, natural selections piece this week, which was broadly on. Um, um, I'm just gonna make sure this works. Yes. Uh, don't show my screen yet, Zach. But I'm about to ask you to. Um, my natural selections this week was broadly on sort of dominance hierarchies. I had I had tweeted something a month ago, a month and a half ago, responding to sort of a naive understanding of what an alpha male is, and then we also got a quest, asked a question about it in our Q and A last week, and I was thinking about you know, how humans don't. Have alpha males, and a lot of people think alpha male is a is is not a thing at all, and that's not exactly true. But it is kind of an archaic term; it's not really what's used much in animal behavior anymore. But uh, there are a lot of reasons to expect that humans don't behave like, say, gorillas. Uh, but also, we have well, you can read the piece. How about, this is this. I did not mean to embark on a question of what an alpha male is, but everyone will have something that comes up in their mind when they think alpha male. So I wrote this piece, and I needed a picture to go out with social media when it went out. And so I looked on Getty, Getty Images. And you may now show my screen, Zach. Uh, we've just put Getty Images across all of these, so there's no um, copyright risk. I'm just going to, I just screenshotted the top images uh, when I do alpha male, and I will describe them for those of you just listening. We've got a, uh, a virus being injected with a, with a needle. Uh, we've got a guy in a, like a, a plague mask from the, middle, uh, from the Middle Ages. We've got a close-up of a researcher in a, like a hazmat suit and a mask and, a, and some kind of a vial. Uh, hands, dude in a mask with a syringe, a hand with a syringe, a biohazard bag. Um, a guy sitting alone in bamboo. A 
I don't even know what. To, how do I describe that? A uh, dorky looking <laughs> guy flexing his muscles. Yeah, looking angry. Because yeah. that, 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 and that was the point of this thing, like that I wrote. It's like actually, it's not about anger and violence. It's about conciliation. Anyway, um, on and on and on and on. I'm not going to describe all of them, but almost all of these are like blue suited, white suited, uh, you know, masked people with syringes. Or phones, or right. syringes, on all masks, and this like this is this is what Getty gives up when you say, "I'm looking for pictures of an alpha male." Finally, at the at at the the very end of what I'm going to show you here, then we have just like three pictures of randomly happy people, most masked. of whom aren't men, masked, most of whom aren't men at all, and then a kangaroo, which like as far as I could tell, it's the first possible alpha male I've seen here, right? This kangaroo. Yes, I mean, in fact, the. Uh and maybe it's, I don't even know. I can't sex a kangaroo at this distance. Maybe that's even a female. I don't know. Um, it's not worth delving too deeply here, but it's possible that in that cluster of four images, three of those images appear to be of the same scene where the dude is yeah. standing, like he's a college yeah. student standing next totally. to two female college students. No, it is. Yeah, one of them has changed a shirt in one of them, but no, it is. You're right. Yeah, so... Anyway, it's possible that that's what they're getting at. But there is something very odd here. Now, when you showed me this, I thought something is wrong with this. And I'm just like, it may be just even algorithmically broken. And I wondered if, Mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't bringing up all of these COVID images, which would be more at home in a search. If you searched pandemic or COVID, you would expect those images. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, But so I did a test and I searched for alpha. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, just to see if it was talking about a variant, if that's why it was triggered. Nope, didn't happen. So anyway, it is the alpha male search, mm-hmm. and male doesn't do it either, right? Yeah. So there's something about those combination of terms that is triggering, you know, maybe it's just algorithmic. Um, but uh, anyway, it's it, it, there's a question about what's going on here. There's very much a question about what's going on here. Uh, does our producer want to say something? Yeah, that's not our experience at all when we checked. It was not the same images, but it was also lots of COVID images when we searched Alpha. Unfortunately, so Zach and I are having a disagreement. Yeah, do you want me to, I don't know, do you want me to talk into the mic? And... You could talk into the mic. Um, we can't show you the images because of the way Getty works. Um, and we would be putting ourselves in jeopardy if we showed those images without... Um, without putting Getty across yeah. so, so just to clarify what I just said, my sense when we searched up Alpha was not the same images, but related oh, oh, COVID oh. images. No, that is that is correct. What we saw for Alpha variant, at least... No, no, was, no, it was just Alpha. I just plugged in Alpha. Uh, so we saw a lot of images that were like pictures of a virus, but not pictures of people with syringes. And it was definitely odd. The Alpha male search was particularly weird. And I also searched, interestingly... If you plug in beta male, it's identical. The search is like identical mm-hmm. to alpha male, which is weird. Hmm. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't know. And I've got one more set of images to show as well. You know, I, again, I was just looking for an image for, for this piece and I tried gender norms. Now, before we show this one, don't show my screen just yet, Zach. I will say that I did this search back. It would have been Monday night. And when you guys redid this search just now, this morning, yeah. it, came, it came up with totally different answers. So, you know, again, again and again and again, I, I have to wonder, and we should all be wondering, to what degree am I seeing what other people see? To what degree is a search a search? 
right? And I, you know, I thought, you know, we, we have purchased access to Gettys to, to use professionally, and I would have thought that a search would be a search. Yep. Uh, and, you know, you, you, would, you would expect it to change over time as new pictures get added, as the cultural milieu changes, whatever, milieu. Uh, but alpha male and gender norm, which is the other search that I did here, would seem to have nothing to do with COVID. And so if you search on alpha male and what you get is a whole bunch of pictures of uh, COVID-y syringy things, it's very, very, very odd. Uh, and then what we see, if you want to show my screen now, Zach, uh, when I searched on gender norm, and again, this was not replicated today, five days later, is what appears to be pictures um, from China, maybe, of people being given um, throat swabs. Just over and over and over and over again. Yep. For it's amazing. The search on gender norm, and then then we end up at baseball. <laughs> so, I'm I'm just baffled. Yep. And 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 continue to be you know concerned in places like the evidence for concern shows up in places I was not expecting it at all. Right. So uh, as you will recall, years ago, um, when we were professors and creating lectures. Mm -hmm. The typical thing, you did yours differently than I did, but in general, there was a sort of sense that we would build a lecture in PowerPoint and then deliver it uh, in one way or another uh, in front of the class. And I became pretty adamant. This is long before anybody had confronted us over anything. Mm -hmm. But I didn't like the idea that when I gave a lecture and I was going to talk about the evolution of love or something, mm -hmm. right? That if you plug, uh, if you search for a random image, what you tend to find are images of well-heeled white people in the Western world in love on a mm -hmm. beach or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And I, so I used to have to trick the search engine into giving me images. You know, why, if you plug love into a search engine, why are you not likely to come up with hunter-gatherers? in some place on earth fewer pictures for one thing well, there and, are... it's le and it's less often what people think they're looking for but of course that reinforces what they think they're looking for right but okay at the very least there should be a wide range of images from different cultures since every culture has this feature mm -hmm. right it should be it should not be heavily biased in some direction and so i used to have to counteract mm -hmm. the heavy bias inside of google and um at one point, I was talking to my students about the fact that I was doing this, and they clued me into the fact that actually Google was sensitive to where you were searching from, and that if you tricked it into where you it thought you were, you got a different bias. Um, so anyway, there's some long-standing thing, and there's a genuine problem. How do you solve the problem of um, delivering images that are representative rather than reflective of a bias in the population that's likely to be searching or the expectations or desires of those who are searching. Why not you want a search engine to give you an actual reflection of the world mm -hmm. rather than to reinforce biases. But as soon as you start trying to correct for uh, biases, then the point is you're in danger of introducing biases. And anyway, it's a, it, it's a, it's a difficult problem. Zach has something to add. Uh, I just need to correct something that I told you that was incorrect, which dad and I tried to find out. When I just saw what you showed, um, it turns out that when I tried to replicate your search for gender norm, I was using the wrong 
category. You know what I mean, Mom. Uh, but anyway, I just tutorial. replicated it. It's identical. So oh. that's actually... Mm, okay, so both of these changed. searches so that, do replicate yeah. now. So okay. they're, they're okay. identical if I search them now compared to when you searched them a few days ago. So that's not a data point there. Just Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I don't honestly know what it means. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't see how... I don't see how this functions to anyone's benefit, honestly. Um, <clears throat> with regard to gender norms and thread swabs, it makes I, I can't get anywhere with it. With regard to um, alpha males and people being masked and, and getting syringes poked at them, I can see how this is consistent with a, a narrative that we are um, we are being asked to agree to, which is that you're sort of you're not you're not doing your duty and you're not you know maybe you're not being uh, a, a good man if you don't do the thing that the government is asking you to do. Well, I have a, a hypothesis that is um, simultaneously worse and maybe less targeted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I know from what little I've done Getty image searches that there are places where it just doesn't have anything right? sure. because it's actually buying access to these mm-hmm. f- photos. It doesn't, you know, things that get particularly right. But someone at Getty tags them, so you know, right, I, right, right. I, I I could see taking a lot of pictures. Like the picture I, sh- I should show, the picture that I ended up using, uh, which was from a search on Alpha Male, and I'm gonna just keep talking so I can find it here. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Was presumably my guess is that uh, this person who took this picture, you can show it now, Zach. Um, did not take it and think, ah, that's a picture of an alpha male. Right. right. But it got tagged this way, and I looked at it and went, goldfinches at a feeder. Yeah, there's like the, the, the one guy that's looking at the bird coming in. That's a territorial interaction at least. Yeah. Right? So I, I know I interrupted you, but you know, I don't – yes, there are certainly – arenas where there aren't very many pictures but someone someone within each of you know Flickr within each of these places that is distributing pictures is deciding how to tag photos right but uh remember my claim was that my hypothesis would be both better and worse okay Okay. so the idea is you have a repository that isn't a collect everything and you know let some ai tag it it's more deliberate and more selective than that Mm -hmm. it's good images They, you know, are manually tagged, and so it's a much smaller pool, which means that if you search things that nobody ever searches, mm-hmm. the search doesn't have anything for you, right? Getty doesn't know that it should be looking for pictures of gender norms, right? Maybe that's not a very common search. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, it probably isn't a very common search. Um, mm-hmm. Likewise, alpha male, you know, maybe. But so imagine the following: imagine that there is a nudge in the search that mm. biases every search a little bit so it just puts in a smattering of this mm-hmm. um here's what people are doing you know they're getting jabbed they're taking swabs they're doing this stuff and that when the algorithm comes up empty because you've thrown it a challenge it's not good at the only thing there is the nudge and so the point is it spits out a bunch of stuff that has nothing to do with your search mm. and has to do with the fact yep. that there's a very subtle nudge built in to the algorithm. But in the absence of any other data, that nudge becomes uh, much larger than life. Right. And it's a yeah. testable hypothesis, of course, because mm-hmm. it, once you know that there's going to be empty categories, we could go search some things that we expect to be pretty empty and see whether we get the nudge mm-hmm. right in the direction of everything. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I mean, it's terrible, but it's... See? Yeah. I told you. <laughs> both better and worse. Yeah, indeed. 
Um, so I'm going to save one of the things I was going to talk about for next week. And I got one little tiny thing to maybe uh, add at the end, or I can add it here, or... Uh... No, let's, uh, you'll add it at the end. Okay. Um, so the first thing that I wanted to talk about of my two topics here is uh, on my mind because of an essay that was just published by a good friend of ours, Holly Mathnerd is her... Uh, her gnome de plume. It's here on my screen if you want to show it. Zach. Yeah, you want to put it up. Um, it's called Next Step in the War on Kids. Next Step in the War on Kids. And uh, I'm not telling any tales out of school to say that Holly is somebody who had an absolutely horrifying childhood. And she has written about it, written about the, Some um, of it. the abuse that she faced and um, her struggles in dealing with it and basically you know she's an amazingly capable person who has um you know she's in some ways self-constructed in a way that most of us just simply aren't right because she had to you know break the programs that she got from her traumatic childhood and replace them with better stuff which is a a, a difficult process and in any case she has been um Sorry. very uh sensitive to and I think prescient about a march towards the normalization of pedophilia that is clearly occurring. And anyway, her new essay is about a next step in that march towards the normalizing of pedophilia in society, which I had never even heard of until she alerted me to it. Um, and what it has to do with is a new term. Now, many people will be at some level familiar with a term that recently emerged, which is uh, minor attracted persons, which is basically a, an antiseptic-sounding, legitimizing term that substitutes for pedophile. Right. right. So if you were going to normalize this, pedophile, of course, sets people on edge. As it should. And the idea is, you know, in a world where people are, you know, obsessed with the idea that, you know, you shouldn't shame anybody for any kink they might have, then the idea is this sort of swaps this terrible thing in under the radar by describing it like any other um, sexual proclivity. Right. So that's bad enough. And we've many of us have seen this trend and understood the hazard in it. But then there's sort of a next phase. And the new phase involves another term. Again, I've never heard it before, which I think is adult attracted minor. Yeah. And um, this one is even, I mean, basically... It's even more evil. It's even more evil, right? Because, you know, the natural discussion about, wait a minute, minor attracted person, why did we stop saying pedophile, mm -hmm. um, is not brought forth by this term because now the focus is on the you know sexual desires of children um, and it does strike me as absolutely diabolical and that there need to be a certain number of things just simply on the table so that people aren't caught off guard by this term and um, induced to normalize it because really we have to reject terms like this let me just read one sentence from her piece yeah. um, before you get to your main point here. Again, it's called Next Step in the War on Kids, and she writes, Just as there are now millions of children who believe that you can't differentiate a man from a woman without asking, 
The notion that you can't tell a child from an adult without asking is their specific and intentional goal here. Right. And by blurring this distinction, they are legitimizing behavior that, in my opinion, ought to be at the very top of our list of things that we defend against. Now, I don't want to globalize too much. I will say in the last five years, I believe we have seen an epidemic of our failure to protect children from harm. And you see it across all sorts of domains, right? What we did over COVID vaccinating children who weren't vulnerable to the disease with a highly novel uh, inoculant um, was unconscionable, right? Even if there was no evidence of harm, there was no reason to expose them to something novel and novel stuff hurts people. And so why would you even take that risk? And it was even worse than that because we did know, or some people knew that there were um, harms that were done. So anyway, my argument is going to be these things are part and parcel of each other. Now, of course, the failure to protect children extends into other domains that go back much farther, right? People will have seen my two conversations with Mike Mew, and they will know that by Mike Mew's model, which I am all but certain is correct evolutionarily, we are allowing a facial structure in children who have yet to be harmed to be degraded by giving them diets that do not create the proper feedbacks and that it isn't just malocclusion, the failure of the teeth to meet properly that is caused by this, but it is many other pathologies, right? The sicknesses that people have, allergies that they have, sleep apnea, right? Potentially um, attention deficit disorder, all sorts of pathologies that we, to the extent that Mike Mew is right, which again, I think is, he's almost certain to be mostly right. Um, we are, we haven't yet harmed people in the future, right? There may, we may have to deal symptomatically with people who have already had this problem, but you know, anybody who hasn't been born yet could be saved from it. And we're not protecting those future children, from this problem. So there's some epidemic of failure to protect children and the harms are not small, right? It is not a minor matter that you get an injection that causes myocarditis, right? That is a life shortening disability. The um, toying with the uh, breaching of the taboo against pedophilia is going to expose children to what is effectively a psychological maiming, right? That, that is the thing. And so first thing, I wanted to point out what the trick is. And it's a trick. We've already talked about it a little bit uh, today in a different context. But the trick is to get people on board with some strategic change that is desired by some group that is advocating for something it should not advocate for. But to get people who don't have a dog in the fight on board by... People who just want to do the right thing. Right. People who want to do the right thing. Well, how do you do this? You create the impression that somebody is a victim and that their victim status has to be your focus. We have to actively challenge the victim status. And in the case of this uh, adult-attracted minor, the victim is a child who you are oppressing by blocking their sexual attraction to an adult. Now, A, this is 
sophistry to the nth degree. It's demonic sophistry. It's demonic sophistry. But the point is, it's obviously just garbage. And the idea that one feels an obligation to marshal a counter-argument is already wrong, right? This is insane. And I want to explain why it's insane. Even if you took all of the arguments that are made in favor of a shift like this, and you said, there's truth in them. I'm not saying there is, but let's say there was, right? You still cannot be certain that the change you are contemplating is not going to do massive harm to many, many children who have yet to be harmed by this. In other words, the precautionary principle, even taken at its, you know, at its, uh, its lightest measure, still requires you to forbid us to play with this boundary, right? So that you do not end up maiming children who have yet to be, in this case, psychologically maimed by such an interaction, right? Even if you thought the argument was right, it's still not so certain to be right that you can afford to play with this definition. Okay, so that is me granting way more than I should, even if the argument was right, it's still dead on arrival in any decent society that understands that its top obligation has to be to protect children from harm that hasn't happened to them yet, right? That's right? That should be our top priority. And the fact that we keep falling down on that obligation across different domains ought to have us on high alert. We are yep. screwing this up and we have no right to screw it up. This, you know, a society that fails at this will fail, period, right? You don't protect the young, you're cooked. So, okay. Now, let me step back and talk about this actual claim, right? Because I think, um, you know, it couldn't be more ludicrous. I mean, again, I'm going to jump in and say I don't like sophistry, ludicrous. It's grotesque. It's evil. It's demonic. It's demonic, as I as I also said. The, I go on. <laughs> I, I just I object. The words right. like ludicrous well, here. It's, I, it's, not, it's nowhere close. I agree with you. Now, as an evolutionary biologist, I will say I try very hard to avoid claims that something is evil because I know that evil is a bad strategy. If we take amorality to be the absence of morality and evil to be the desire to do harm, evil is rare because it, you don't get ahead by doing it. This right? is rare. This is a right. bad strategy. That's, that is I agree with you. If if ever there was a place where we should invoke terms of evil, this is it. So mm-hmm. the normal caution about invoking that too easily does not belong here. This is a place where that does belong. Yep. All right. But I wanted to talk about just the basics of the claim and point out how insane this is. I mean, A, it's a little hard to know what normal childhood looks like in this regard because... You mean anymore? No, at all. Right? Because what we're talking about is who children are sexually attracted to. A, we're not supposed to talk to them about it. B, it tends to be lost in memory because it, the point is it just it's a topic that is um, we lack information, right? Now Well, but I mean, didn't isn't that meant I feel like that's missing the point. Well I mean it depends it depends on how old we're talking about, but I thought the most the more basic point is children aren't sexual. But I but this is the problem is I don't I don't think that that's the case. I think that 
Um, it is inevitable, given what a human being is and how a human being is programmed to be successful as a human being, that all of the programs that eventually have an adult manifestation have a prototype version in children that then gets okay. refined. Okay? And so I will just, uh, the, this is weird, but, you know, I believe, as far as I know, I am a normal human male, right? The evidence for this is actually pretty good, okay? You and I have been together for decades, mm -hmm. right? We've been married since 1998, mm -hmm. but we've been together for decades. We have two well-adjusted children. We have not gotten exasperated at each other and gotten divorced, right? Well, the first, but not the second. Right. It, yeah, that was a... Mm -hmm. it yeah. Need, yeah, needed parentheses to unite those two things. The exasperation we have felt to each other has not produced a divorce, right? right? And so anyway, all of those indications are, um, I think, pretty strong that, uh, you know, I am not unusual in my adult human maleness. Right. Now I did. Maybe it's quite this, a setup. I know it's quite a setup. Well, I did a little back of the envelope uh, calculation. More math. It's not going to be more math. No, it is more math. Oh boy! And it turns okay. out because the, the math is not going so well today. No, I think you'll like this. Okay. And I think you will validate that the math is excellent. Okay. Okay. Here you go. Um, I this is this is potentially an argument for how I might be a little unusual. Mm. Um, oh, you're a little unusual. <laughs> I have, if my calculations are correct, yeah. been. Uh, male for something like 20,000 consecutive days, not a single day of being female anywhere in that streak. You didn't wake up and were like, maybe I'm 40% female today. Never? Never once. No. 20,000 consecutive days. Uh -huh. All right. So that's, that's kind that's, of amazing. That's quite a streak. Okay. But other you than got that. got quite a streak going there. Boy, mm -hmm. it's got to be a record. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? Okay, so it's said the guy who works on lifespan. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that it should be a record. Do you? Yes, I mm -hmm. do. Yes. Um, okay, but that, that's further evidence that you're male. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying. Yes. Okay. Quite male. Okay. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. I don't. I do not know how normal my sexual development was. Okay, but I do remember as a very young person, like probably five or six, mm -hmm. right? I remember uh, being attracted to, you know, twenty somethings. You know, a teacher, a, a babysitter who was particularly nice looking and kind, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I remember an attraction, and I know for sure mm -hmm. it was a sexual attraction, but. It was vague, completely vague. Right. I had no idea what that was even about. Had no concept. It was just like, you know, desire of some yeah. kind, right? Yeah. I don't know how normal that is. I don't know if the distinction is between males and females. It may be that females don't normally feel that, that at that age, and males do. But it's not shocking that it would be... Well, and there are, I mean, you know, we have a word, you know, a word that we have, which I think you just used as well, is crush. Yeah. Right? So there, there is, we do know, we do recognize that children experience these, like, you know, fits of, of 
intrigue and focus. Well, but I'm not even yeah. sure it just isn't a building block that yeah. was necessary. You have to go through oh, the abstract desire before yeah. you desire something. And, you know, because we're humans and we're not pre-programmed, you know, in any specific way, we are, you know, we build up that over time. And presumably yeah. the information that we have access to fills in details. And frankly, this is a very good yep. reason not to have this information, you know, circulating around where kids who shouldn't be encountering this stuff are seeing it on the internet or whatever right so anyway my point is i think my development was normal i don't know that for sure i don't know that normal means normal for any kid or if it's normal for boys and not for girls i don't know yeah but but my point my point is the fact that i was attracted to sympathetic nice looking girls at that age young women young women mm -hmm. women you know not incidentally you just have to be careful with the language because of what you're trying to communicate i agree but i mean you know and the problem is you, you get to our age and you you know look back at you know young people and you it, we don't have really good terms for this young woman is about as good as we can do here but the point is it is not surprising given all that we know scientifically right there's a reason that um beauty is concentrated at the moment at which adulthood begins right mm -hmm. there's a reason for that and that has to do with the fact that the amount of a woman's reproductive life that is ahead of her is maximal at that moment while she is capable of producing offspring not surprising that boys should be focused on women that age at any age, right? Because the point is that's that it's about something else. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't think I really want to spend time here, but I don't know that that argument makes sense if you're talking about a five-year-old. No, I think it makes sense because the point is the five-year-old is going to keep building up some model of what sexuality is until it's actually plausible mm. to interact. And the point is it doesn't make sense to keep moving. I mean, look, I had crushes on girls my age, mm -hmm. but... That vague attraction that I didn't know what it was at the time mm -hmm. was focused on something else. It was, you know, yeah. frankly, it's about sex. It's about reproduction. And so not terribly surprising that it would have that focus. And anyway, my only point is there is no argument in the world that those desires, vague as they are in a normal child at that age, should be met with reality. That's not what they're for, Right. In in which case, I, I see now where you've gone, in which case this is precisely analogous to the child who wakes up and says, I am Batman, should not be taken seriously. You might indulge him his fantasy for the day. You might let him go to school dressed as Batman. Yep. The child who wakes up and who is a boy and says, I am a girl, should not be taken as reality. Yep. And the child who has such a feeling towards an adult probably doesn't announce it. So it's right. so you know it, it's it's different. And then this is probably this is probably not something that becomes public, but uh, is part of a fantasy scape of development, which is about the child progressing towards adulthood, and which should not interface in any way. Must with, not. Must not interface in any way with uh, the adult world, adults and their behavior, uh, and adults making decisions about what they can or cannot do with or to children. 
right? And actually, it occurs to me now that there's another example. Um, I remember we were at a party at a, a colleague's house. You sure you're allowed to tell this story? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I know sure. where you're going. Yeah, okay. I, I will. I will purge identities. I don't think they're important to the story. Okay. We were at uh, a couple of colleagues married to each other, had a couple of kids, and we were at a uh, a holiday party of theirs. And uh, Zach, I believe it was, um, was... I thought you were uh, purging identities. <laughs> oh, Zach. Zach, I can, I can make it right with him later. But um, anyway, Zach at one point uh, well, must have been... He was five or six. Yeah, he was, he was five. And, and the daughter of, of one of the people there was 14, 15. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, Zachary, was um, gazing up at her. Sweetly. Sweetly. But with such attention. But clearly very focused on this beautiful girl. And this beautiful girl's father looked at Zach and said, he's going to be okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Yep. Yeah. Well, Anyway, there's nothing wrong with that story. Mm-hmm. It's a good story, yep. right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, you're welcome. Um, but uh, but anyway, the uh, look, the whole thing. I don't know how much we know about what normal looks like. Yeah. But the point is, don't you dare mess with normal, which involves having thoughts to yourself, never explaining them to anybody, them being the foundation on which your later, more precise, less vague sexuality is built, right? All of that is normal. And the idea that any adults at all are playing with the concept Mm -hmm. that these things should be brought into reality, that, you know, your fantasies as a child have anything to do with what the adult should be thinking about is insane, Again, insane is too gentle. Yeah, it is. It is. And so, well, maybe that's just the punchline of this Mm -hmm. is no matter what you think, no matter whether you hear an argument that you think has some merit, no argument that you could possibly marshal in this space is sufficient to overcome the burden of what we don't know and the damage that we absolutely do know can come from this, right? Pedophilia, no fucking way. Right. That is that is a bright line if ever there was one. Right. There is no brighter line than that one. So um, I don't know. I, I, I hope we can wake the fuck up from this because watching people experiment with linguistic arguments to get us to flirt with removing protections of children is just um, it's it, grotesque. It, it is grotesque. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, do you also want to talk about another thing. Yes. I, I could intervene with a with a light bit of, of uh, uh, 30 seconds of you CDC intervene, hilarity. and I will go through a process while you are intervening. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let's see. I got to just pull it up. Uh, this. Uh, yeah, hold on. I, apparently, this is recent, but I don't, I don't have the date on it, so I'm, I'm, I don't remember exactly when this tweet, you may show it, from the CDC. You all remember the CDC, right? Uh, said this. <laughs> It's not too late to get vaccinated. You can get the Mpox vaccine at the same time as your flu and COVID vaccines. Dr. I'm going to butcher this guy's name, Demeter Daskalakis, sorry, encourages you to talk to your vaccinator about what is right for you. Your vaccinator. That is a great villain identity. That is a villain identity. When? And so I li- I'm not going to show you the video. It's not worth watching. But he, it's true. He's like, ask your clinici- clinician or your vaccinator. For whether or not the impact shot is right for you. Your vaccinator? The vaccinator versus the malinformer. 
<laughs> I know who I'm betting on. <laughs> that's all. That, I, that was just... That that's, is. that's the CDC. And it's, again, I mean, it fits. It's like it's, again, playing with language. It's not, it's not grotesque and evil, that particular move, right? But it's a lot, it's another step in a, what is becoming a portfolio that they are engaging in of acts that could possibly be viewed as those things uh, if you look at them in the aggregate. Well, there is a way in which it... Vaccinator. Yeah. <laughs> I do find something troubling about it. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, in part, uh, it is... Some part of me doesn't want to say this, but I do feel like that tweet will only be read by people who have not died suddenly, and that is why they can say it isn't too late, because for some people it is too late. Um, yep. Yep. See? Mm-hmm. Math again. I mean, it's underlying <laughs> it's, deeply it's, enough. It's, it's always there. <laughs> math is everywhere. Um, yeah. Without math, life itself would be impossible. Wow. Is that true? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Without things that we can describe with math. Yes. I mean, yeah. I, yes, fine. You know, the, it's, there's the math and there's the thing that we call math when we study it. But yeah, I was talking about the first, the actual math. <laughs> so I've never nailed it down for sure, but there's this quote that is attributed to Darwin sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, a mathematician uh, is like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. <laughs> That doesn't sound like Darwin. That sounds like way Darwin. too modern. For I know, Darwin. I know, but I did find several references. I don't think it's Darwin, and I don't really think it's true, but I do think it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yep. yep. <laughs> All, right. All right, I've gone through my process. All right, here we go. Last, so my process, last section which of is, this. Oh, yeah. uh, analogous to uh, my trick for getting out of speeding tickets. Oh, um, wait, you sure you want to give this away? Yeah, at this, I never get pulled over anymore, so um, I don't think I need it. Uh, so you're like just inviting the universe. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm taunting the universe. Well, it's been taunting me, so oh. it's turnabout is. I think that's true. Also, yeah, at least not here on the uh, the uh, autonomous West Coast. Um, but anyway, my trick uh, for not getting tickets—it doesn't work every time, but it does reduce the number of tickets that actually get written—is that as the lights go on, um, you're being pulled over instead of. Um, trying not to get angry, you accelerate the process so that you go through it and you're done with it by the time you are pulled over, hands at 10 and 20 on the wheel, and you roll down the window and say, yes, officer, how can I help you, right? So you you accelerate the emotional reaction as much as you can, including the physiological reaction, Absolutely. so that it is done, so that you're through the irritation and the rage and the mm, officer Absolutely um, finished. before you meet him. Yeah, and then... He or she walks up to the window and, I mean, first of all, you do it right, okay? You find a good place to pull over. You pull over far enough so you don't leave the officer hanging in the street. You keep your hands on the wheel so he's not worried that you're going to pull something on him. And you roll down the window and you say... How do you roll down the window with your hands on the wheel? Yeah, you wait (laughs) till... He knocks and then... Yeah, you wait till he comes up. I'm playing at sophistry here. Yeah, you... (laughs) You're not very good at it. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. Awesome. Um, but anyway, yeah, at the point that you uh, display no anger whatsoever, because frankly, you got it all out of your system. Um, 
It's really clear. Yeah, it's really so clear. And the thing out. is, it's very unusual, I think, from the cops' perspective. Oh, for because sure. they, you know, everybody they pull over. You're not is anxious, feeling, right? You're not, like you're, you're not exactly. And mm. so the point is that very often causes them to think, oh, this person sucks less than average, and <laughs> you know, they'll throw you a bone. But yeah. um, um, you know, I feel burned. I feel I feel singled out, which is in fact exactly how it works. Right. right, exactly. Most unless, of the time, you get unless away you're with... alone on the highway when you get pulled over, you're you're going with a bunch of people. And you're hardly the only one speeding. Right, right. and you know you've justified it. Pulled over, then you got to be the fastest one there to get pulled over. Really, no, you didn't really. didn't used to be the case no. anyway. Yeah. Anyway, this anyway, we digress. Yeah. I have yeah. now gone through this process. Okay. I'm I'm ready to engage this last thing. Um, so. Many of you will have noticed that uh, Sam Harris showed up in lots of places he was trending on twitter for some stuff that he said and weirdly enough from my perspective what he said was about me and um well i didn't like it all that much. uh so the question is what to do about it. And I didn't mention it last week in part because I, you know, did need a little process and it was going to take longer than pulling over to the side of the road to get past that process uh, in order to do anything reasonable with this. But I don't know how we ended up here. From my perspective, and I understand that there are, in some sense, two planets. There's planet, what I think is planet reality, <laughs> Right, And on planet reality, I believe Sam Harris has been wrong about just about everything related to COVID. And you and I have not been right from the beginning, but we rapidly got righter and righter. Every place we got something wrong, we fixed it. And we now uh, have a set of positions that as strange and remarkable as they are, do appear to be borne out by the evidence and uh, are very robust. Okay, things happen. COVID was complex. Guy got some stuff wrong. What I don't understand is why he's on the offensive, right? Why is he taking a victory lap? Why is he torturing logic in order to rescue his rightness from the evidence? None of that makes any sense. And at some level, I guess he's entitled to do that. But what he's not entitled to do, and, you know, look, Sam, among other things, is a moral philosopher. And my claim is going to be that Sam is not entitled to be taking a victory lap where he has been wrong and making the arguments that he's making if he is not also willing to make those arguments to me so that we can pressure test them. Now, I will say there is one aspect of this. I don't know what to do. I don't know whether to feel relieved that he's attacking me and not both of us, right? Like, I don't want him attacking you. So maybe that's good. On the other hand, it does seem kind of disrespectful um, but whatever the case is, it does seem to me that as a moral philosopher, Sam, you are required, if you are not going to simply uh, take a breather and reflect on how you got stuff wrong, if you really think you got stuff right, and you think that the reasoning that explains how you got things right uh, is robust, you don't really have the right not to talk to me about it. So... Either you're going to agree with that and we're going to find some way to talk and I promise to be decent about it. I, I'm not going to pull any punches, but um, I think you and I 
could have a conversation. We could do this IDW style. We could have you on dark horse and we could talk about why you think you were right in spite of what I think the evidence says. And we could see how those arguments work out, right? That would be in some sense, the easiest thing to do. We could have somebody else like Joe Rogan or Jordan Peterson uh, moderate a discussion between us. In some sense, Peterson would be a natural since I moderated the debate between you two, right? This could be a change of chairs and we could get to some productive thing. And I think you will agree that uh, whoever is actually right, the world would benefit from us figuring that out in a way that lots of people could understand what it is that makes that position correct, no matter what it is. That should be true. Um, we could do that. Or as a third possibility, we could, as I suggested, I guess it was, I think it was in June, um, I suggested that we use the QPARC software environment, which, as far as I can tell, neutralizes every valid concern you have that... Uh, would flow from us having a conversation. So you, Sam, have expressed concern, for example, that if you were to sit down with me, that I might spring some study on you that you'd never heard of or hadn't thought deeply about, and you might fumble, and that that might result in people getting the wrong impression, and that, you know, lives could be lost as a result of the fact that you didn't know what to say in the moment. And I, you will recall that when you made that argument, I said it was one of the few things I agreed with you about, that this is a danger and that that's a problem, and so we should neutralize it. But the QPARC software environment, which is still a prototype but good enough to use, completely neutralizes that concern because, it, A, it is asynchronous. You could um, write out your argument and take as much time in doing so as you wanted, and you only, you know, push the, I don't know if it's the publish button, but the send button on your argument when it's done. You would also be completely free to bring anybody you thought was expert uh, along with you so that you wouldn't be suffering from having less insight than you might in some area that wasn't your your particular focus. You could bring Eric Topol, whoever you wanted. I will bring my people and we can have this out. We can figure out what it is that we disagree on, what the evidence actually suggests is true, and what the implications are for how we should be um, managing the pandemic or whatever it is. So look, that's three options. I don't really feel like it was required that I give you three options, but you got three options on the table. And if you don't take any of those options, if you still think it's cool to be going on podcast after podcast, accusing me of not being qualified to talk about things where I have been right and you have been wrong, well then, you know, I'm going to stop being nice about this. So please, Sam, think about it. Think about it in moral terms and get back to me because, uh, you're at the end of my patience. Excellent. That brings us to the end of this week's show. Oh, not the universe. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Definitely not. We're not there yet. No. We're going to take a 15-minute break or so and come back with answers to your questions, which you can ask at darkhorsesubmissions.com. Uh, we'll spend about an hour in that live Q&A, and then we'll be back again next week, same time, same place. 
You can email logistical questions that you have to darkhorsemoderator at gmail.com. We've also been getting requests lately for, do you have an address to send mail to and such? Um, we do, and um, I don't remember it at the moment, but it's on both of our websites. But we do. So. That's the answer to the question. <laughs> you, can, you can email that darkhorsemoderator at gmail.com, or you can go on to either of our websites, um, and um, under the support button, you'll find a mailing address. Uh, please consider joining our Patreons. Uh, read Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, and most important of all, until we see you next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone.